Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 5, where we'll be revisiting the film You Only Live Twice. So we talked about Thunderball a lot last time, obviously. It was the episode about that film. Uh, but we talked about how it was almost like the beginning of the end. It was kind of like the peak of Sean Connery as Bond. And now we're kind of going downhill. Which is quite interesting considering this is the film where we finally, spoilers, get to see Blofeld. Yeah, we do. I say that with a bit of sadness in my voice. Since, oh, no. uh, that's yeah. I mean, we do. And it's it's how many films in the making now? I suppose it wasn't really... Spectre wasn't really in Goldfinger, so what, three films in the making. Mm. Um, and I, it's something that I think is... Uh, well, we'll talk about it, but it's something that I think is one of the not great points about this film. But yeah, you're right. This definitely is the um, the downward trend of Connery, and I think that's one of the biggest things to take away from this film is that it just doesn't... He just doesn't seem to be in it, really. Just not really there the same way he was for the earlier films. I could remember so little about this film going into it, which has probably been true for most of these, and it's probably going to be true for a lot of these future ones as well. But it was really weird. Like Now that I've rewatched it again, it kind of seems insane that I did forget a lot of it. There is a lot of moments in this film. I would say potentially there's more iconic moments in this film than in Thunderball. But for some reason, because it's... It's that awkward film where it's not fundable, it's not the big spectacle, it's not on Her Majesty's Secret Service with a different Bond, it's just that one in the middle that gets you between those films. And that's not to completely dismiss the film or anything like that, but in my head I just couldn't, I just, I just couldn't remember the film. I know I watched it, I just couldn't tell you anything about it. It's the one that has Blofeld and the big reveal. And an old scary man with the eye scar and the white cat. There he is in full view. But I forgot just how how much it crams in, given that it takes place in one location, pretty much. How many stunts and how many set pieces and how many action scenes it crams in, in, I think it's, I think this one's shorter than Thunderball. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just like one after the other after the other. So I think, yeah, I, there's a lot that I forgot about this film. Um, that when I watched it for this, oh, oh, yeah, it has this, and then by the time we even realise that, it's on to the next stunt. I'm like, wow, okay, moving quick. But does it deserve it? Does it deserve? I, actually, I'm quite interested. Like, if you ask the typical Bond fan, would they actually agree with this kind of assessment that it's just that awkward middle one? Because I kind of feel like you know we're here on this podcast to express our opinions but i'm not too sure how much we actually sync up with a typical bond like fan maybe people who love this era actually think that yeah it's the blowfeld one it's the one in japan it's the one with the volcano base and things like that maybe it does stand out more i don't know i I think it does i think it does it stands out uh, particularly given the rise of all of the 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 cliche bond traits Doctor Evil, Austin Powers. That that is watching those elements in this film, but not as a joke, was really jarring. <laughs> At least for me, anyway. Um, so I think, yeah, it stands out in that regard. But honestly, it's it's sort of. And by the way, I've I've already lost. Like you're saying about like what you think people's reactions are to our opinions. I've already lost everyone 
with my opinion of Goldfinger, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. all right. I, I'm I'm fine just to carry on ruining people's um, opinion of, of me. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, I'm going to start saying I love uh, Diamonds Are Forever, so that's going to seal the deal. Well, I won't be attending that podcast then, I think. I can't wait. It'll be just a five-hour-long podcast of me talking about Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> oh, God. It'll have, like, negative downloads somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's being deleted off the internet. I want a refund for this free product. <laughs> Shall we get into it then? Let's get into it, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we're not as high energy today, and I think that is somewhat because of this film. So I think we've already revealing our hand a little bit. Mm-hmm with our attitude <laughs> yeah. maybe we can perk up a bit i don't know listen i've got my blanket on because i'm cold so i'm I'm ready to go well he's got his I'll blanket he's got his bond blanket on his roger moore blanket i'm assuming i could go get my roger moore pillow but it's downstairs and it's too cold so i'm not going to do that damn <laughs> it's too far away yeah <laughs> so we start off once again bond coming across was it just me or was the bond theme being played at a different pitch than normal Oh, so hang on, no dot, no dot stuff. Yeah, no, just just the the picture. I didn't notice that. I noticed that ah, they put it in no. black and white for some reason. I don't know why they made the gun barrel a bit black and white, but I didn't notice the pitch. Ah, I just fit these things are driving me crazy. Like every time, yeah, it's, it should be the same each time, and I'm like, is that different? Is that different? I don't know. I think they're maybe they're just playing tricks on you. I don't know. It could be. I hope yeah. so. I didn't notice any pitch pitch change. But again, I, I was having some issues with, with audio stuff and trying to get the right balance of audio on my on my PS4. So that's besides the point. I think you're on your own. Sorry. Okay, cool. It'll just be a gas leak, but we'll deal with that after this. <laughs> did you start seeing some very strange things later on in the film? I did. Actually, that's just the film. It's yeah, fine. That's, that's the not, film. That's, that not, the scene. <laughs> that's not Sean the gas. Connery thought he was Japanese. It was like, that must be a gas leak, right? oh no 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 (laughs) no 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 so we have this he walks across and to get our weekly check-in with the hat revelations he is still wearing the hat yeah i think it's the same footage again i think think so as well but last time the hat disappeared but it's back (laughs) you need to stop with this hat stuff Uh, hey they if they (laughs) They keep reading me in. They keep putting this <laughs> stuff down. If they just kept it simple and he just had a hat and he just kept his hat, I wouldn't have minded. But they're the ones just saying like, oh, does he have a hat? Doesn't he have a hat? Just just pick a hat or don't. I need, no one, I no need one's a direction. No one's saying that, Tom. It's just you. <sighs> You're obsessed. I did look it up about that Thunderball scene. Oh, yeah. Just to go to your point about obsessed. And apparently, no, it's just a continuity error. Ah, oh, that's all oh. it is. It's just a continuity error. They just kind of left it in there as it as it is. The hat disappeared, and that was that. And they just didn't bother to put in an explanation. Is apparently what people are saying. Well, that's no fun. No. Oh, but it was also black and white, wasn't it? Yeah, it was black and white. Okay, good. <laughs> it was. Yeah, they, good. I, I wasn't they, in color. That's good. I don't know why they did that because the last one definitely was in color. But yeah, artistic choice maybe. Yeah, I don't know what it ties to, though. Can't think of anything it ties to with the film. No, not at all. So we get that little bit, Bond coming across, shooting the gun, classic. Maybe it's a different pitch, maybe it's not, we'll never know. 
Uh, and then we go into space where we see a satellite in orbit and we have some space babble basically so this is a u.s space babble yeah yeah where we have houston ground control speaking to the astronauts and they're basically going through the motions in terms of we're going outside and i'm going to hit the button good luck hitting that button apollo or whatever you know it's just it's just your space babble um so what did you think about these special effects? Because this film has a lot of of these space scenes where we see these spaceships in, well, space, but it is also very obviously not in space. But obviously they still found a way to, to fake it. Yeah, especially starting out the film like this, straight on to these quite uh, technical special effect shots. I started to write down that I was quite impressed by some and then at some point I was going oh actually that doesn't look very good oh but that looks quite good no they've ruined it again with that it for me it constantly kind of seesawed between actually being being quite impressive for the time um of 1967 this this film came out um and then and then just doing one thing that just completely wrecked the (laughs) like for example in this opening bit I, I quite liked all the model work and and the the astronaut uh, in in zero G. I thought actually that was not bad, um, and then they sort of had this really bad sort of um, matte painting of of him and his his hose like oxygen pipe, and it was just mm. looked really really crap. So it's like they do some things really well, and then other things lets it all down. So I don't know. Sometimes I was impressed, but other times not. I was exactly the same. Like the very first shot where you see the the spaceship in orbit, that looks pretty good. But yeah, as you say, wildly inconsistent, wildly inconsistent. Sometimes it can look good. Sometimes it can look pretty atrocious. Maybe that's all part of the fun. I don't know. But it's weird how they can get it so right sometimes and so wrong other times. Yeah. And I'm just going to get this out of the way early because I feel like it's something that we've been saying for the last few podcasts. Um sounding like a broken record, but one of the things that really uh, um, ex- kind of brings this whole scene to life, even with these little special effects issues, um, is the music. I think the music of these space scenes and later, I mean, throughout the whole film, you get these sort of, um, yeah, spacey, I don't really know how you describe them, but the score by John Barry, uh, uh, almost marching as well, like a marching drum sort of thing. Uh, for this opening scene, great, love it. So good. In fact, the music for all of it is really good, but really helps this first scene. Yeah, there's a very specific piece of music they use for these because throughout the film, there's quite a few space scenes where we see some spaceships, well, in space, and they have a very specific theme for it that plays so you know what's happening. And uh, yeah, 100% agree. It's it's a classic. It's, it's very iconic, I guess, in its own way because it's tied to these scenes. But yeah, it just sounds good. It is... I feel like Austin Powers did do their own version of this theme. I can't say for sure, but I feel like they did also take this theme. And it maybe just isn't Austin Powers, but this, just like a lot of the film, this theme also gets parodied elsewhere. Really? I'm, I can't think of that off the top of my head, but I, I wouldn't be surprised because, yeah, like Goldmember, there's <laughs> a lot of space stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think so. I, I might have to look that up. But basically, the whole point in this is that we have this US ship floating in orbit. Then they see something on the radar, a little dot. 
and they're all very confused and they're like what is that is that another spacecraft what's happening here and it's a is there a name for this spaceship what the 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 evil one the evil one yeah i think there is but i have since forgotten something tells me it's bird but i don't know why I, I couldn't tell you. I put bullet spaceship the whole time because it looks like a giant bullet to me. It it does. It does. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know if they ever kind of give that detail, but it kind of just linked into the whole, as you were saying, the uh, space babble. <laughs> just. Yeah. It's just, it's just happening. It's just happening. So. Yeah. So this other dot, which is, I'll call it the bullet spaceship, comes out of nowhere. It then opens up at the front and basically swallows the other spaceship. But what's also quite cool about this scene, despite the effect of the astronaut not being very good, but one of the astronauts is out of the ship. So as this other ship is um, stealing it, I guess, and sealing it up, that astronaut is outside of the spaceship. So his oxygen thing gets cut and he's dead. <laughs> and that's it. It's like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty hard. Pretty hardcore for a Bond film. And also it's it's... Very different. It's a very different death than we've seen in the previous Bond films. So, yeah, they really, really went all in with this this space element. Maybe not as much as Moonraker later on, where it maybe went a bit too far. Uh, but they, yeah, they definitely uh, take the space plot and and go with it. We get, as you say, lots of scenes in space coming up and and the music with it. So, yeah, straight off the bat, we're getting a, quite a cool, a, quite a cool death. If you want to put it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty grim is the word I was thinking of, but cool, cool works as well. I guess it depends how you feel about space. If you're pro-space, then I guess it's not too bad. <laughs> I hate space. I wish it would just go away. <laughs> boo, boo space. <laughs> That's what I do at night is I just go up and I boo the sky. Oh, you again. <laughs> just shake my fist. <laughs> yeah. But also, and we'll probably talk about this later, I think it sets up how this film has a much more casual um, casual attitude towards death, where quite a lot of people just die in this film. And Bond has been very casual about it in general, but this is the one where I feel like there's a lot of people that die and it is there's zero weight behind it. Like, this is the film that kind of established that. And even though I felt like this was quite grim, I think arguably it does kind of reflect how the director and the story was approached, which was like, yep, a lot of people are going to die. And that's just part of the story. That's that's actually really true. I did note down later on that there are some deaths where it probably would have been better if it was a there was a bit more attention to it and, and maybe a bit more... Uh, making it a bit more grim in, in terms of like hanging on someone, like screaming or something like that, which kind of sounds really <laughs> psycho when I say it like that. But yeah, it, it, they just they just get on with it. There is no wasting with this. Like someone dies onto the next scene and sometimes that does deflate it. Other times, as you say, maybe it's just this idea of wanting to give that impression of just there is just a lot of death, just get used to it. But I think coming from the previous Bond films where some some characters' deaths have been quite um, quite focused upon. There's not really that in this. No, but but we'll get there. But yeah, I feel like it kind of starts out with this, even though it is quite grim for me. So we go from that and we fade into a snowy type area where we have a load of diplomats basically sitting in a room 
where the US diplomats who are not very happy about this saying, you Soviet Union guys, you've stolen our spaceship. This is an act of war. And then the Soviet Union guy saying, no, we didn't do it. But look, surprisingly, like, what would you describe as look at? Slimy? Smug? Like, he's just sitting there looking like very casual, I guess, and nonchalant, considering how he's being accused of starting or trying to start World War Three. Yeah, it didn't seem like he was taking it particularly seriously. I don't know. I think it's something about the actor they chose to be the, the USSR representative. Just didn't seem Russian enough to me. <laughs> <That's> no, <laughs> not Russian enough, no. Like, the, the American is very American. The British guy is like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's well, actually a gentleman. And then the Russian guy, I don't know, I just feel like he could have been more Russian. But that's just a minor nitpick. You're right, he did sort of have this laissez-faire attitude on him. Yeah. Although I did like the US guy being very emotional. Maybe it's just because I'm British, but that was like, yeah, this sounds about right. This is, you know, definitely playing off stereotypes, but I can get down with the stereotype of the US being very over the top while the UK guy in the middle of them is like, now come on, boys, let's, let's all talk about this. We can sort <laughs> this out. A cup of tea and then we're sorting this all out. Yes. Yeah, it was very much like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, so while the US is blaming the Soviet Union or the USSR for this and they're saying, nope, we didn't do it, the UK diplomat in the middle is saying, we don't think it was Soviet because the the bullet spaceship landed elsewhere and we have a man in Hong Kong currently... Now, how did he phrase this? I don't oh, think I wrote it down right in my he notes. He says, I did write it down because I think it's potentially the first, I can't think of it happening before, the first of these sort of cut gags where we get these quite a lot later on in in subsequent films where uh yeah the the diplomat the british diplomat says um uh he's working on it now and then it cuts to bond and um the character does have a name but i've now forgot ling ling in the bed in hong kong yes so yeah they're together in bed uh sort of about to i think she's about to give them a massage or something like that they're they're about to canoodle in some way or another um before the bed the bed that they're on where she gets out and then the bed uh that bonds on sort of flips upwards it's one of those ones that flips up into into the wall um and then two two armed men come in and just blast it so anyways i started blasting uh into it and um oh no bond's been killed because i think is it the police then come and uh put it down and yeah, and Bond's there, and there's even there's even some blood. So it's like, wow, it's really happened. They got him, which I thought was quite interesting because this whole beginning pre-title sequence featuring Bond dying, it's almost like they're sort of expanding a little bit upon what they did in Thunderball with the whole JB on the coffin. It's just, they said, right, we like that. Let's do it, but let's go even further. Let's actually kill him and show him, show the body with some blood. I don't know why they were sort of fixated on that right now, but yeah, they really wanted to to have that intro of of Bond dying and the, the not really a cliffhanger, is it? But just a, a nice point to jump off of uh, for the title sequence. Well, it's not even just Thunderball, is it? Because this is how From Russia with Love started as well. You see, right? You see him get choked out and killed, just to be revealed. No, it's not actually him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> so you're right. It's, it happens quite a lot. It's, yeah, three out of five of these films have featured Bond being killed in some sort of fake way. They, uh, how long does it take until they eventually do stop doing that? I guess it's the next one that they do uh, stop. Yeah, I guess so. 
Yeah, I just really liked it for that little while. The thing I quite liked about this sequence, though, is how quick this all kind of happened. So Bond's mm. in the bed, she jumps out, and then it it's one of those where it flips into the wall. So that happens very quick. So poor Sean gets flipped. And then these two men instantly run in and shoot them. Like, instantly. Like, they were outside the door waiting for the bed to flip, I guess. And then are just right there with the guns. Like, by all accounts, that looks like that should have worked. Like, I know it was a fake out, but that looked like a very solid plan. They were ready to go and they shot shot him straight away. Like, I feel like Blofeld should have taken notes on this one and just done that again. Like, right, that worked like a charm. Like, that actually worked. So let's do the old bed flip and just shoot him. Because I think that would work if they were doing it for real. Four months of rehearsal it took them for that. Yeah. Yeah. Every every step choreographed. That's how it's so efficient. Yeah. Kept missing their cues. <laughs> they just kept missing the bed entirely. <laughs> yeah. You shot the woman. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, and then, like... Uh, comically fast you get the police turn up and then yeah they don't they don't waste any time with this um this pre-title sequence do they no but i will say overall because now this is the the blood stain on the bed it zooms into that and then that goes into the credit sequence but overall i might say this is my favorite one out of the bunch because really yeah i i really like how once again they've started with the slow opening where it's very quiet and things like that. And I like that you get the space scene straight away because we get a lot of these. I like that it starts with that. And then you get that other scene where it's the diplomat talking, then it's Bond with the, the death. I I really like it. It's not an individual Bond story. Like it is not, they're not approaching it in the same way that Thunderball did, where it's a self-enclosed thing. It's just a lot of events that tie into the main film, just kind of enclosing them into this short I guess, few scenes. And and I liked it. I was like, this is kind of what I wanted out of one of these. Yes, I know Bond's not really dead or anything like that, but I think it's a good sting to end on. And I think it just sets up the film quite well. And I like that the slower pace and not much happening builds up as we go. And then you're kind of left thinking about quite a lot of things during the opening credits. Like, what's going on with that ship? Is Bond really dead? The UK is being quite calm in that meeting, so that's pretty cool. I actually think this might be my favourite, but comparing it from Rush with Love is kind of unfair because they're very different things, but I definitely preferred it a lot more than Goldfinger and Thunderball. Hmm, that's that's interesting. I So does the fact that this doesn't really have... You could argue that the whole space stuff is is the stunt, really, I suppose. that's That's what you're meant to be impressed by. Which maybe it was impressive at the time, but does that not does that not bother you that it's not really anything very grandiose about it? Not really, because I don't think it tries to be. Like I, I think if, in my opinion, it's it's successful in what it's trying to do, and it's not trying to this big stunt that fails, which is kind of what you could say about Thunderball a little bit. You know, that's trying to be this big and exciting thing, and it's not really all that exciting. This isn't supposed to be super exciting. It's meant to be a little bit more slower pace at the start and then building it up. So I I think this is a good example of where they don't focus it around a stunt, and it still works. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think mine was still, at the moment, would still be from Russia of Love. But I will say, uh, kudos to this pre-title sequence for actually having dialogue 
that I can hear quite easily. So <laughs> it's a huge improvement. Huge improvement. Thank you very much, uh, whoever did the sound mix for this. So you're saying you're not a big fan of this sequence? I, I think it was fine. It was fine. Not that I wasn't a big fan. It was just, um, yeah, it kind of just happened. I, I didn't, yeah, didn't really have many thoughts about it, really. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I think something maybe to consider is that a lot of the story and setup is in this first bit. But if they did it like Thunderball, where they pushed all this story into after, you know, into the main film and then did a separate short sequence, that would probably extend the film by quite a bit. So I kind of appreciate some sort of, I guess, self-awareness with how long Thunderball was and maybe they don't want to hit that length. So I think they much smartly incorporated the opening sequence as part of the story. So things kind of get going straight away. And I can definitely appreciate that compared to what Goldfinger and Thunderball did. That's true. That is true. Though we do get a lot of uh, uh, spaceship stealing in this film, so maybe we could have gone with one less. I don't know. <laughs> it, that, that's a, that's another argument. But anyway, um, yeah. And then after that, we get into the the title sequence itself uh, with the the song by Nancy Sinatra, "You Only Live Twice." I think I've always said that this is one of my favorite Bond themes, purely because of just that intro, the the start of this song is just so iconic to to Bond fans, especially. But um, I think it's it's been sort of sampled as well. Is it Robbie Williams used it in one of his songs? Millennium, I think, has it in it. But anyway, um, I'm a I'm not a huge Robbie Williams fan, by the way. I just <laughs> just kind of recall that. Uh, but yeah, I I really love the song and the whole sequence itself, which has sort of yeah the focus on lava the the volcanoes in japan and um sort of a circular pattern design thing and 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 japanese women it's um i would say this is sort of the first given how they've all gone so far the first four films this is probably the one where it's kind of found the template that i think they have now for a long time we've had elements of it already the the silhouetted women and the colours, like a very big emphasis on the colours and things like that. But now you've got all of that in one and a lot of um, sort of layering of these things. So you'd have footage of a woman and then something in front of it and then maybe like silhouette of something coming out and then it's all wrapped into one now. And this is kind of it for for that template. Uh, for that And for that reason, I think it's quite good. I don't, I don't actually think it's my favourite so far. Um I still think that will probably be from from Russia of Love for its simplicity, but I, I didn't mind this one. I think the music just really, really sealed the deal for me. Yeah, I found this one a bit odd because, like you say, they have taken a step forward here, where it's not massively different from, say, Thunderball or anything like that in terms of like concept. But they're definitely executing a little bit more. Like there's all those circles with all the lines that appear behind some of the credits. You know, like mm-hmm. something that I think the last couple of films did was put the credits over the top rather than having it be projected on. And this one fleshes that out more by having kind of yeah these circles behind it so they stand out. And there's a mix of silhouetted women and just women who are not silhouetted. So that kind of gives it a little bit of of variety. But I wasn't really super into this one. I, I quite like the Thunderball one a bit more because I like those themes. But this one is definitely trying to tie into the motifs of the film with the Japanese woman and the lava. 
I just, I don't know. I thought that lava footage was just a bit lame. Like, it just looked quite low quality. It wasn't very kind of interesting to look at when it really should be. Like, it's lava. Like, lava is quite interesting to look at. But this one, I feel like they just didn't have the technology for what they were trying to do. Like, if it was a modern-day Bond film, they could probably do some really cool creative things with the idea of lava and lava flowing everywhere and over women or whatever. I don't know. But this one was just, like, stock footage of a volcano, but not even very interesting one. And I think I might have to upset you a bit on this one, Joe. I don't really like this song this much. Oh, no. I really like it as part of the score. And that's how I see this film. I think it's a a fantastic backing track. And as you say, the the opening part of this song, I think when you hear it in the film, it's fantastic. It works really well. And and yeah, I, I love that part of it. But the actual focal theme itself... Whenever I try and remember how it goes, I always think of nobody does it better instead. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I can see the similarities there. Yeah, but this is a very different kind of Bond theme where it is more slower and it's not big brass and in your face. This is very different to what we've got from Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones. It's a little bit more romantic, I guess might be the word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bad Yeah, so I think the strings work well, but the actual vocals and the singing and, and... the melodies and stuff i find that quite forgettable so for me i thought this opening was okay but i've kind of preferred the simplicity of some of the other ones and i've preferred some of the other themes as well where this is just great backing track but overall not not one of the strongest themes in my opinion i i I definitely agree with you about the um the lava stuff and the stock footage it's definitely clear it is it was just some stock footage that they had and it didn't match the quality of what we later see in the film uh, I think probably a little bit, a little bit too complex for its own good at this stage. Where you're right, it doesn't quite have the the tech in in terms of creating opening titles uh, to to make it as good as it could have been. I think it's one of those things that obviously does get better, but it just makes it look a little bit ugly. Or yeah, I don't know, just a little bit a uh, little bit clunky at times. But I don't know, it's all right. And also, did you spot the um, the screenplay for this film was by Roald Dahl. Yes, I did. Yeah, I actually totally forgot that beforehand. It's one of those things I remember reading. I thought, Roald Dahl, really? But yeah, apparently he was a friend of Ian Fleming or something like that. And um, It's like the perfect pub quiz question. Yeah. Like if you went to a Bond-themed pub quiz and they didn't ask you, you know, which film was written by Roald Dahl, you'd be like, what, what are these guys doing? Like, what are these guys doing? Like, it's such an interesting piece of trivia that I feel like it's almost kind of taken its own form as that, like, interesting tidbit. Yeah. Yeah, and a uh, new director as well. Yeah, new director. This time we have Lewis Gilbert at the helm. So this is our third director. So Terence Young is now not coming back. He will not return. Uh, we will get Guy Hamilton back, but in the meantime we get Lewis Gilbert, which I think he directed some more after this. I think the other ones he did... I was reading this the other day, was The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Okay, so some big ones. And another very heavy space one as well. So he must just love space as well. <laughs> big nerd. <laughs> <I guess> so. <laughs> what a nerd, yeah. What a nerd. Uh, so after the, the credit sequence, we then cut to a city harbour. And this is a really... like I was really impressed by this opening shot. There's, there's not much to it. 
But we get this nice big pan of this city harbor. You got all the boats there and the city and things like that. And it's a really nice wide shot. And then it kind of pans across to show more of the ocean and the boats. And I was like, that's a really good start. And this film has quite a few of these. And I think it's something Thunderball did well as well. But it's interesting that we have a different director, but he still very much focuses or or spends time on big wide shots. So you really get a, a sense of the place that Bond is in at that time. 100%. Especially for a location like this, where when it eventually does get to Japan, and there is such a mixture of different scenery, you have, you know, cities... And then you get to the the more natural uh, uh, places and the shrines and things like that and castles. Uh, the cinematography for this film is definitely one of the highlights. And you're right, it kind of it's evident straight from the get go. Um, honestly, I think that's probably one of the most impressive things to me about this film is that some of it actually still purely from a cinematography, like some of the shots are really impressive and they look really good still. Yeah, it's just interesting to see these places and see it in such a, a nice angle. Like, yeah, that like that in itself, we've talked about Bond traveling the world and how that's being interesting. But I think this is the first one, maybe Fundable did it as well, but that really nails, you get a sense of Hong Kong and Japan purely by looking at these shots. And yes, maybe Goldfinger did it a little bit, but this one is kind of mastered that uh, just through the cinematography. Yeah, and it helps that this one... I think Thunderball was also in widescreen or Panavision, whatever it was called back then. But uh, as we say, I think this one handles it better. So having this nice widescreen Bond film with these beautiful shots, it, it really is a icing on the cake. Oh, yeah, definitely. So the reason why we are here is because there is a boat out to sea uh, as part of the UK Navy. So I'm assuming it is Hong I think it is Hong Kong. Um, and this is Bond's funeral. We just saw Bond be killed, so now the US of the UK or the English Navy are taking him out to sea and dumping off his body. And we get this remix of the Bond theme, and it's awesome. I don't know how you feel. I really like this version of this theme. I do not remember it. I didn't write ah. down anything like that. I think I was just too busy kind of taking in the, the whole burial at sea ritual with the shooting and everything. I did not pay attention to the theme, though. Oh, it's very, it is quite quick to be fair, because basically it's meant to be like a, I guess, a Navy funeral version of it. So it's kind of more slower and horn based. I can't remember exactly what part of the song, but it was really interesting to hear them try and take the Bond theme and remix it in a way that would be appropriate for Bond's funeral. Uh, and it's something I completely forgot about. So when I heard it, I was like, that's really cool. I I can appreciate that. Okay, I'll have to have a, a rewatch, I think. And also, can I just ask, who was that creepy man sitting on the dock? <laughs> I'm Oh, I missed the creepy man too? Yeah, oh, there was man. just a... So basically, when the scene starts, we have the nice wide open shot. And then there's the man sitting on the table with the newspaper, where the newspaper says, oh. uh, British Navy commander found dead. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does that sort of zoom into the <laughs> the newspaper. I guess... We, yeah, was he meant to be creepy? Well, I only say creepy because he gets his like binoculars out and he's like watching the funeral from the dock. Is that implied? Oh, see, now I'm, I'm saying this without really remembering it, so I could be way off. But could it be implied that that's meant to be someone from Spectre? 
I would think so. I don't know if that I, you know, you would think they would show his ring, Spectre ring, something like that, but I don't remember. Although I do feel like, and it's something that's quite cool about this film, is that you can probably guess it's Spectre, but it does take a little bit of time before they 100% confirm, yes, it's Spectre. So it probably, in retrospect, is meant to be Spectre, but I think at this point in the film, they're still trying to keep up the hush-hush, let's all pretend it's not Spectre, even though we know it almost certainly is. Yeah, I guess that's it. In which case, that's kind of cool. Didn't think about it in that way, but yeah. Yeah. So as part of the funeral, they dump Bond's body into the sea. Uh, and then we get another underwater scene. They couldn't help themselves. They were like, we still got the tech. <laughs> like, we can do another one if you want. The guy, the, the stunt guy that did it all in the previous film was just still around. Just yeah, so, hey him. guys, <laughs> need any more underwater scenes? Yeah, go on then. You can have a, you can have a couple. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Uh, it's just funny because so many people complain about the underwater scenes in Thunderball and then we get to the next film and like five minutes in there's another diver underwater scene it just made me laugh a little bit it's short though thankfully very short yeah so Bond's body lands to the bottom of the ocean uh, and then we see two divers appear take the body and then put it into a sub where inside the sub we see these navy people navy officers um, cut open the body bag and there is bond bond is in the bag but he has some sort of breathing device which meant he didn't drown and i don't think they ever explain how they did fake his death or how any of this stuff really works i think you're supposed to just say well he's got the breathing thing and just never really think about it because the the film doesn't spend any more time on it than this yeah, yeah, you know, it's got some sort of oxygen tank there, and then back on the pre-Tolta sequence, there was just a, you know, he burst a red capsule or something. I don't know, you're just meant to sort of go with it, aren't you, I guess? Um, but yeah, he's he's there, and he's alive, and he comes out, and he's... I, I do love this bit. I, I mean, it kind of set up, it set up previously with the whole naval funeral thing, but this is kind of the first time we see Bond in his naval outfit as a, mm. as a, as a commander. I think he was a commander in the Navy. Uh, and it's just great. I always, I just love scenes where Bond is in this outfit, um, just giving a little bit more back background to the character. Uh, it just looks so good. Looks so good. Yeah, because he's all wrapped up, but as soon as he stands up, he is in this pristine, pr- fully pressed, uh, like Navy officer uniform, and, and I completely agree. It's so, it's so cool to see. Um, but this instantly goes into uh, the Money Penny M scene. Yeah. So because we got a lot of the story stuff out of the way in the pre-title sequence, we're now straight away getting onto the Bond getting the lowdown, getting his assignment. And this scene starts with more hat stuff. We start on the hat. <laughs> I did write hat is back. Hat is back. So before we even see Moneypenny, it just shows a shot of Bond's naval officer hat landing on the hat rack. And that's how this scene starts, which I thought was nice because as soon as anyone who has seen these films sees that, you know you're in a Money Penny M scene because where else would they do a hat rag gag? Yeah, yeah. It just to rewind it a little bit. Is it really ever explained why? Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be explained. This is just me being overly analytical. But why did Bond actually need to be in that in that body thing? Well, I, I know it's to, to, to sell that it's his funeral, but no one would see if he's in there or not. Why did he Why did he have to do go through all that? 
It's yeah, silly. I think the actual explanation is that it's James Bond. Yeah, and exactly. And looking good is what he does. Exactly, and he does look good. But uh, I think you could probably also argue that if a Navy officer or Navy commando is killed, they probably are buried in their uniform. Right, right. I just wonder who would have known that he was even in there. But I guess I guess some people, because they had to go and rescue him. So, as, yeah, you're right. We get into the M, the M money penny scene aboard this submarine. And one of the things, just kind of before we get into what actually Bond says to money penny and M, one of the things I wrote down is that it's kind of a bit weird that they have the M money penny office scene aboard a sub. Like the thing that makes it weird is that it's like the exact same layout. It's got it's got money penny in a little room at the beginning, sitting behind a desk. It's got the hat rack, got M's office of paintings on the wall. Except it's in a submarine, and and it's just. I think M does eventually say a line about that's you know it's really important. That's why they're there, so that's fine. And I think it's just about passable in this regard. It did make me think later on in other Bond films. It does get a lot sillier where they have M offices and, and money penny offices in just like ludicrous places. Like I think one of them is like a boat where it's like off center. So everything's wonky, like at an angle. I think that's right anyway. So this one's okay. <laughs> this one's okay, but it does get weirder later on. Yeah, I liked it. It was it was surprising, I think. It, it's nice to see the same setup in a different location and with this being the fifth film and also they are trying to escalate things like they're not trying to escalate the story as much as say fundable did but they're trying to make it feel a little bit different and try to get that escalation as we go through these films and i feel like having them be in a different location is kind of part of that but it's kind of funny to see the efforts they made like i guess both in the in this world where these exist and also the film itself of like trying to make it feel as similar as possible as their <laughs> yeah. actual offices like well it's like they're on a submarine and who was m like no money penny has to have a room before mine and then bond has <laughs> yeah. to be able to go through and there has to be a hat rack and then we need a separate door and she needs to be on the right <laughs> like it's... that's what i mean it's like it, it would have sold a little bit better if it wasn't exactly the same layout, but I guess they had to because you're right. It has to be the M money pen, uh, money pen, money penny scene. So yeah, it's it's just I do love how you just picture M looking at the blueprints, going, "No, no, no, this won't do. This won't do. Redesign this. <laughs> Go back. Start again." <laughs> um. So yeah. So then Bond goes in, sees M. M is also in a navy uniform it doesn't look as good as bond no but i definitely appreciate uh bernard lee uh wearing something a bit different yeah was he was he wearing shorts there was something up right it wasn't a full formal one there was like either cut off t like shirt or shorts it was one of them oh i think you're right i think it was like a, almost like a yeah short sleeve one something about it i was like oh that's a little bit informal maybe for for him but maybe you know he's in his office he can relax a little bit so I can't quite remember exactly what is said here. I'm going to be honest. Um, it's not much. In it's fact, not much, I mean, is it? the, we kind of we kind of brushed over the first bit of Money Penny because, like, it's very. I don't know. I wrote down that this this little intro because you know when Bond goes into the office, there's usually a little something, and then there's usually a little something on the way out as well, which this one does have. But it felt very weird to me this Bond and Money Penny dialogue um before he goes into cm 
it's straight off the bat, I think it's because he calls her Penny. I was like, oh, that's a bit strange. Why is he calling her Penny? Is it that they're pretending not to know each other as well or something? Because, I don't know, it just felt off to me. But when he goes in to see M, basically the only thing he really says M to Bond is, is uh, I think it gives the sort of time deadline for this, which was three days. Uh, and then basically just to go see someone called Mr. Hen- Dicko Henderson. Uh, and that was pretty much it. It's very, very light. Maybe because you're right in that they've set up a lot of stuff already. So they don't need to go through a lot of detail. But it is over kind of in a flash. Yeah, I think it's three weeks. Is oh, what three weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, but yeah, I think in short, M saying, well, you're dead. So I think he said you're getting more elbow room on this one. And this is the big one. Bond's like, where did the rocket land? And he was like, Japan, we think. And then he does also say the US and the Soviet Union are at each other's throats at the moment. So this could lead to a big war. So yeah, Bond has three weeks, move fast, no dilly-dallying, get out there. Uh, and then then that's it. So we don't really get much chemistry between these two, which is kind of a shame. But it's just, I guess, just not what this film wants to focus on. No, no, there's we need more time to to dress uh, Bond up as as an as a Japanese man. So we need to hurry oh. up with the plot. Oh, so Bond leaves the office, and then then this is when we get the chemistry between him and Money Penny, the the usual chat. Yeah, where. Money Penny asks, "How was the girl, the one that Bond was with?" And then he's like, "She'll never know what she missed, I guess." Um, and then it's in this one where Money Penny says, "We we have a password or a passphrase for you. So when you're in Japan and you're meeting up with the SIS, is that the name of the organization?" Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the SIS. You need to say this passphrase, and she says, "It's I love you." Uh, which is something that comes up quite a bit uh, in this film later. Yeah, she's like, could you repeat that to me just to make sure you know it? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) Yeah, I got it, got it, got it. One thing about that, very, very, uh, very quickly, um, I completely forgot that that was the code phrase for this this film, I love you, uh, because I've recently been playing uh, Destroy Humans 2 video game, um, which takes a lot of Bond things, and there's a character called dr go and in that game the code phrase is i love you and as i was watching i thought i was like oh okay so yeah it just makes me like that game even more when i i remembered that connection yeah i don't have any strong feelings about this it it does feel very different but this film in general established so much like bond cliches i guess or established so much in the bond canon that people think about when it comes to bond that I was like, ah, whatever, it's fine. But it is a little... It, at first, I thought it was a little bit weird. Then, doesn't Money Penny? I think she goes to give him... Give Bond a... a like a quick translation guide for, Japan, uh, for Japanese. And that's when Bond just casually just throws out that he he studied Oriental languages in whatever school it was he went to. It was like Cambridge. School. Was it Cambridge? It's like, yeah. yeah, thanks, but no thanks sort of thing. It's like, wow, all right. It's just trying to be nice. <laughs> I don't know. I quite appreciated that we had Bond said, say, like, I went to Cambridge. Because we talked about it before, and we know Bond is very skilled and knows a lot and is very knowledgeable. So I kind of like the very quick line of, like, part of the reason why he knows a lot is because he went to Cambridge. You know, it's not a big thing, but it was nice to kind of have that confirmed in the films themselves. It would have been nice if that was a setup to actually have Bond 
use some Japanese in the film or maybe have some scene where he needs to know Japanese to get past someone or, you know, out of some situation. I think the most he really says in this film is Domo Arigato. Like, it's not, it's not much that he actually says in Japanese, which is a bit of a shame when they set it up like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Everyone just speaks English to him, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I can't even think of a, a translation scene. Everyone just comes up to him and speaks English. <laughs> nice and easy. Well, you're clearly not Asian, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> no matter how hard you try. <laughs> yeah. So after the little meeting with M, one thing I wanted to question, do they really shoot people out of submarines? Because he gets loaded into sort of like the torpedo bay and shot out. Does that I didn't take it as that, but I might not have been paying enough attention. I took it as Bond left the submarine and they just fired a missile at the same time to hide it. Although now that I'm saying that out loud, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that seems a little bit dangerous, but maybe maybe you're right. Or maybe they do and it's fine. Maybe they just do it for fun. But anyway, Bond gets shot out. Uh, and is able to sort of swim away because obviously he's still meant to be dead. Although, yeah, we'll get onto that later. But yeah, um, he eventually gets to uh, Tokyo and you get sort of these cool shots and, and cool scenes of Tokyo lit up, all the neon signs. And this is kind of linking back to what we were saying before with some of the some of the cinematography elements of this film and, and how it's really selling uh, the location it's set in. It's just... A, really really good i mean i don't know about you but i just found all these shots of what tokyo was like in the 60s it's not really something i thought of before so uh it just it just looked really 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 cool um so yeah bond is sort of roaming the streets for a little bit walking down and um kind of going down some side alleys and things like that and then uh there's a couple of women that are, are watching him and uh keeping track of him and speaking into their their purse microphones some gadget they've got where they're they're keeping track uh, and eventually bond heads to a sumo ring to a, a wrestling match and this again another example of they're just i feel like with this early bit they're really just cramming in all these japanese things to show off so you've seen the city you've seen the streets let's show let's show some sumo wrestling because you know why not it's it's meant to be uh you know, evoking this this location. So yeah, we just get Bond sitting down in this gigantic sumo wrestling arena. Um, I don't know. At first, I was like, is that like some sort of uh, I don't know, like matte painting in the background or something, or is it really that big? I, actually, I, I think it is. Just they had that many people there. Maybe it was an actual sumo match going on. I don't know. But um, yeah, Bond's there and, and watches a bit of the sumo. Before oh, before that, he does it. He does see, doesn't he? He does go to one of the sumo wrestlers and get something off of them yeah i don't know what that's about so he's trying to track someone down called mr henderson i believe and this is it's like you don't it's another bond classic you don't need to know the details he's just trying to find a man but all these little things happen and it's like can if you try and follow this and fully understand it you're probably going to get lost and it's just easy to say he's trying to find his his guy he's trying to find someone to contact why does he go to a sumo place why is he being watched why does he go out to a sumo wrestler and the sumo wrestler like gives him a ticket and then he goes to the sumo match and then this woman shows like i try not to think about it like he it's all an excuse so james bond sean connery can go in like a full suit 
and looked like a complete, like, so out of place, so insanely out of place uh, in the sumo wrestling. So we have that because, as you say, this film is all about showing off Japan. And I think more than any of these other previous films, this film is so focused on that. Uh, and then we get a lot of like Japanese locations because of it. Definitely, yeah. It, by far the most emphasis of trying to show off uh, a, an entire country to an extent. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing so many different uh, looking areas of Tokyo and, and further afield as well. Um, so yeah, he goes to the the, wrestle, uh, the sumo wrestling match, and as you say, there's a, a woman that comes and sits next to him, uh, where they start to use the the passphrase "I love you." as a confirmation uh, and it's it's not yeah i think really the only reason for this this scene is just to show off the sumo <laughs> the sumo stuff because all it yeah. all she does is say right let's go i've got a car let's go to the hotel where where mr henderson is so it's kind of pointless in that way but you know you get some some interesting shots of the sumos uh fighting anyway yeah i felt this was all just a little bit awkward like it doesn't matter too much because it's so short and brief and it is just there to show off some sumo japanese culture stuff but the woman just kind of awkwardly walks in front of him and then I think like climbs over people to get to him. Yeah. Uh, and then just kind of sits there and it just keeps cutting to an actual sumo match that's happening and Bond and the woman and the woman just looks really out of place and it was like, this is all, this is a bit awkward. I, I don't quite know why we're going through this. Uh, but again, it's not that, it's not that long, so it doesn't matter too much. But I think it's here where we hear a what do I call this? Like a Japanese style version of some of the Bond theme mm-hmm. that plays in this film. And yeah. I have to say, I don't really like this. I just don't see the point of taking that Bond theme and trying to make it sound like it came from Japan or using some more traditional Japanese instruments. I think it kind of works better where they write original music that matches the plays rather than trying to take this Bond theme and rework it i just i just don't think it's necessary i think i know what the track you're talking about i couldn't tell you what instrument that yeah i'm I'm trying to think of the actual sort of bond notes and and how it's it's sort of like a plucky instrument isn't it some sort of plucky string thing yeah um yeah I, i i can see what you mean by that it it does seem a little bit forced into it and we have such nice music for other parts of this film it it doesn't really maybe work in the same way yeah, again, it just wasn't for me. I just didn't... It just felt unnecessary. That's all it kind of was. So after that, the the woman... Do you know her name? Because I didn't write it down. Her name is... I did write it down. Aki. Aki. Okay, yes. so Aki takes Bond to her car and they're driving around... Or they're driving to go see Mr. Henderson. They get to a, a very Japanese-styled house... I don't know what Japanese architecture is like, but this one is like the most stereotypical to the point Japanese house. And if this is just how Japanese houses are, that's totally fine. I've never been, but this is, and I feel like in some cases, maybe it's like over the top in terms of like that Japanese traditional style. And then it's quite funny that he goes there and it's just a white dude in a row. (laughs) It's like not even a Japanese person lives here. No, no, he's uh, an expat by the sounds of it who's been there for 28 years or something along those lines, uh, Mr. Henderson. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like they were trying to set this up to be something more mysterious than it really is. They're, they're very 
I think with this whole Mr. Henderson and then Bond having to go to the sumo wrestling match and, and there he's getting a bit more information about where to go. And then they do have that reveal and it's just, oh, it's just an oldish man. It's like, okay then, which is fine because I actually really like this character. Um, yeah, Bond goes into this hotel room and as you say, there's there's just a guy there uh, who I think helps a little bit with, with what Bond's mission is about working out whether the rocket did land in Japan, the one that stole the American um, rocket. And so he gives a little bit of insight into that. But I, I think for what is actually quite a short scene with this character, they do quite well. Um, it sort of left a mark on me with just the little bits of dialogue and and the things he's saying about um, being there for, I think it's 28 years, he says, but still just learning the directions around Tokyo and uh, getting Bond's martini order wrong and shaking it, uh, sorry, stirring it rather than shaking it. Uh, <laughs> just little bits, but it, for what is like really a quick scene, because he does end up dying, sadly, um, I, I actually really like it. And uh, the elephant in the room is that this is the same actor that will then go on to play Blofeld himself. Oh, it's so confusing. I saw him and I was like, that's Blofeld, right? Is that how this film goes? That Blofeld plays a normal person? And then later on in the film, he's like, ha ha, it was me the whole time. Here's my cat. But no, he just <laughs> gets stabbed in the back and leaves. But I thought if it was Blofeld, that would be really cool because he gets the drink order wrong. And I like to think if Blofeld was going undercover, he probably would know how Bond had his drinks and probably would to try to wind him up, make it wrong intentionally so i'm gonna mm. stir this and not shake it that'll show him <laughs> diabolical <laughs> we got him yeah no it's it's interesting it's almost like an alternate universe thing but yeah no it's just a i guess they really like the actor and, and brought him back which is fair play the actor's charles gray a lot of people might know him from the rocky horror picture show where he plays the uh narrator but i really like that actor i think something about the way he talks and just the way he delivers his lines and things it's very it's very engrossing to me it's not not really doing much but just i couldn't keep my eyes off of him when he was you know given his his dialogue in this bit yeah and i think he's putting on a different accent to what we get in the later films when he does play blofeld like i don't know what accent he's trying to do here but he's definitely not talking normally like there's no. something a bit weird with his voice yeah, I, I don't know what's going on, but I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't it know what's weird. going on, but I liked it. Uh, yeah, so I think the main thing that he tells him, Mr. Henderson says, is that the name of his contact is Tiger. So the man that Bond is looking for is a man called Tiger. And then he's saying, I agree about the Japanese are involved in this. And he stands by a door and then he stops talking and we find out that he's been stabbed. So this is a... I don't know what they're made of, but one of those thin Japanese walls, like paper or something like that. It can't yeah, be that yeah. thick. And because he was standing next to it, someone was able to come up and just stab him in the back, basically. Quietest stabbing in the back ever. Must have been a very, very sharp blade. Yeah, I, I guess so. And so somebody has stabbed him and he runs away. Bond gives chase and just kind of catches him straight yeah. away. And just grabs him and just chokes him out. And there we go. Bond got him. Good job. Film film over. All done. Yeah. No, actually, he does he does something which I think a lot of... It's sort of a bit of a film trope, isn't it? About dressing up as the person and, and disguising as them. 
so that's what he does with this henchman. He takes his coat and just luckily the the guy, the the assassin, was wearing a mask, which helps as well. So he puts on the mask and I think pretends that he's been beaten up or hit or something and just dives into the back of the car where someone was waiting for the assassin. Um but yeah, it's like, oh actually that's that's quite a it's quite a smart thing to do, you know. <laughs> well done. Yeah, do you think because he makes some very odd noises, basically pretending to be heard, so the guy wouldn't kind of question him and stuff and would just go. Do you yeah. think that was actually Sean Connery making those noises? <laughs> to be honest, I didn't really think about that. <laughs> because it's... I'd, I almost feel like they got an actual Japanese person <laughs> and dubbed it just to try to make it sound more authentic, because I don't think Sean Connery could make some of those pained noises that he's meant to have made. I don't think Sean Connery would have agreed to make those noises by this point. No. <laughs> but, uh, okay, for another 100,000 maybe, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, he gets in the car. Uh, it's at night. So yeah, he's got a hat, a trench coat and a mask, which is why the guy doesn't kind of recognise him. And he's hiding his face because he's pretending that he's been hurt. And we get to Osato Engineering. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, I think it's yeah Osato, Osato, Osato? something like that. Yeah. So he, so basically, he's being driven there, and then we, <laughs> and then we cut to the guy who's driving the car carrying Bond in like a fireman's lift <laughs> uh, hold over his shoulder. I guess basically because Bond said pretending to be injured, the guy has picked him up and he's just carrying him out. <laughs> it just looks so silly. To see yeah. James Bond in a hat and coat and mask being carried like a, a child over this big guy's uh, shoulder. I like how they glossed over what happened when he parked and he had to get out of the car. Like, how did they? How did Bond deal with that? Trying to maintain the the disguise as well. I don't know. How how did he ask to be carried through a series of grunts? We'll never know. Well, he went to Cambridge, don't you know? So <laughs> there was a whole there was a whole course on grunting. Money Penny threw him a book on grunting in Japan, and he was like, "No need, Money Penny. I went to Cambridge." That that would have made it a lot more satisfying for me because it's like, okay, yeah, in action. But yeah, no, you're right. He gets carried into this um into this uh, room. I don't know what it is exactly. It's just got loads of weird furniture and things, uh, and put on the sofa. That's, <laughs> this is it. Really made me laugh. This scene where uh, the guy. The, the henchman who drove Bond there takes off his mask whilst Bond's lying on the sofa and Bond just has to say something. <laughs> he just has to say something. Yeah. Even, though it, even though it cost him the upper hand of having like the first move for this fight. So he rips off the mask and Bond just goes, good evening. And <laughs> I think it just reminded me of like, <laughs> hello there or something from the from Star Wars. But yeah, like it just, just he had to say that even though then sort of negatively impacted the whole fight from the get go. Oh, yeah. And this fight, it, it feels like this fight is very similar to some of the ones we saw in Fundable, where it's Bond versus someone, somewhat awkwardly having a bit of a wrestle and throwing things at them and, and things like that in a big empty space that probably might be too big. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I actually quite enjoyed this fight. I, I don't know if it's because yeah. they were not taking it too seriously but not quite as wacky as the one at the start of Thunderball with the man in the dress. Like, this guy that Bond fight is fighting feels like a stronger person than Bond. Like, Bond feels like he's at a disadvantage. So we just kind of get this awkward fight where Bond's trying to fight back, but I don't know, it worked for me. I like that Bond just picks up a sofa <laughs> and just starts jabbing him with it. 
That's a, oh my god! I love that bit. I actually, yeah, I just wrote down that was the best use of a sofa as a weapon I've ever seen. Honestly, yeah, he just so picks good. up the sofa and just starts jabbing it. It's just this whole, this whole sofa. I don't know. Now, is, listen no, up, Bond. Good. I've got you. This sofa. It's actually got a big dagger in it that pops out like the shoe. <laughs> Not the poison shoe sofa. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I really like this fight scene too. I think like just leagues ahead of the one in Thunderball, purely based on just the editing of it and, and the choreography of it. It's just a lot smoother. It actually makes sense watching it. You you know where the characters are and what they're doing. It's just a lot more seamless. Uh, and I think you're right that the actor that plays the henchman, it's really good. Like he really has weight to whatever he's doing, especially the final, um, the final little bit to this fight scene where he's sort of thrown towards the safe. I watched. It, I thought, damn, that was a really, like, really good move. I actually kind of felt that, unlike Thunderball, where it was all a bit floaty and messy and couldn't really follow what was going on so but you're right it's the sofa that really that really made this for me i love the sofa yeah so good when he did it because after this bond then uses the sofa against him and then tries to do a sword but the man just gets the sword so it's just trying to to stab bond and there's just a lot of flipping of people in this which you know is a little bit silly but it just works like it's just that fundable template but what if it was good and enjoyable yeah so Bond does eventually win, because of course he does. I didn't write down how he how he does win. Oh, he just whacks him with um, like a big statue thing, that like a big heavy item, basically. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, then it breaks, doesn't it? Yeah. So he's knocked out this guy, or potentially killed him, but I would assume knocked out. Uh, Let's say then, knocked out. Yeah, I would, yeah, knocked out. And then Bond goes to hide the body, and he finds this... I put drinks cupboard, but I think drinks cupboard is underselling it. Like there's this whole mini room, like a huge walk-in wardrobe dedicated to just booze that Bond just happens to come across and he drags the body in there. But before he leaves, he drinks a shot of vodka. And is it Siamese vodka? Is this meant to be the bad one? I think so. Yeah, I think it's Siamese. Yeah. Yeah, Siamese vodka. Yeah, and he drinks it and just like, oh, it's like me, it's vodka. It's like, oh, okay. I don't know enough about vodka to know if that's fair or not. Me neither, but I'm never going to have any. Although Bond does know his vodka, I guess, right? Like, that is his drink. What doesn't he know? Dom Perignon, everything. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> he knows <He's>... a lot. <laughs> he studied alcoholism in Cambridge, don't you know? <laughs> oh no oh no this is gonna become a running thing now <laughs> i hope so uh, uh. yeah so he he stores the body has some vodka i don't know because he can uh and then eventually he finds a safe now i'm very interested on in your thoughts on this because i know you got some strong opinion in gadgets because what happens here is that bond finds a safe and then pulls out a device to crack it and it's not a gadget we've seen before <sighs> yeah yeah, it is just completely just so it's so lucky that he brought a a safe cracking gadget with him, isn't it really? I don't know. At first I was at first I said or I thought to myself, "Oh, that's kind of cool that there's things that we don't necessarily know about as an audience that Q has obviously provided him with and we kind of and there's knowledge of of that beforehand in you know, off-screen, so to speak." 
But then I thought, actually, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I remember saying that that's one of the things I don't like is when they just whip out a gadget at the end of the film and it, it saves a day or, or whenever in the film. So I don't know. It, it's At least it's not a massive, like, a massive scene. So I can sort of give it a pass. But it it is a bit strange that it is just there. I think some people might like that for the reasons I mentioned, but other people probably really don't. Yeah, I like it, but it's kind of for the reason you described. It's minor. Like, it's not yeah. the pivotal point of the film where he's fighting the final villain and then he just pulls out something. This is just, hey, Bond is out. You know, he's a spy and he's trying to find out secrets and things like that. So it probably makes sense that he would have some stuff to break into places and, and things like that. So it's the first time we've seen something like this. But I was like, yeah, that's that's neat. Uh, I'm, I'm down with this. I know why you really liked it. Oh, yeah, yes. I know why you really liked it because of what it leads to. Yeah. He's so, back. He's back. So Bond is trying to crack the safe, but oh no, goodness, there's guards on the way. So we get a little short scene of Bond trying to crack the safe under pressure. And during this scene, we get a lot of front face shots of Sean Connery and he is sweating like a good one. Oh, oh, he sure is. There are was, beads are forming. It was, <laughs> it was it was great. I 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Uh, I don't know. I'd say 8 out of 10 could be closer. Yeah, I'm trying to think. We need to do a ranking of Sweaty Sean shots at some point. Let's do that as a bonus episode. I think so. Yeah. That'll be the longest episode we do (laughs) as well. And people will listen to it. I hope so. Uh, I I don't think it was as good as Thunderball, but it's a more traditional Sweaty Sean scene. And I can appreciate them going back to basics for this one. (laughs) Oh my God. Can we please move on? Go ahead. Feel free. Okay, so, yeah, Sweaty Sean unlocks the safe uh, just in time. (laughs) Uh, Well, not just in time, because the guards actually turn away. Um, So it's fine, but then he opens the safe and the alarms go off. So he grabs some papers from the safe uh, and makes a run for it, whilst uh, all the security then find him and and start shooting and sort of uh, Stormtrooper missing him somehow. Uh, I love that they also, when he's escaping from the room... Yeah, you know, he goes out the door, and it's just—I think it's from The Simpsons, an episode in Japan. And Homer just walks through all the the paper doors or paper walls all the time. Yeah, I did think like they could have just—if they just ripped through the wall, they could have definitely caught up to him by now. <laughs> but anyway, um, he he reaches outside of the building, and uh, thankfully, fortunately, gets rescued by um, the same woman who he met at the sumo ring. Uh, she kind of pulls up in this. I don't, I'm not a car person. I don't know, like, I know some of the Bond cars, obviously, but I don't know what that car is. I don't know if it's meant to be, like, a really nice car. I mean, it looks kind of cool. It's like this open-top white car that she's driving. But, um, yeah, she pulls up and and he jumps in and and they get away for a a bit of a chase. So I take this, uh, because it was Aki you said her name was, right? Yeah. I take this as she's keeping an eye on Bond, so that's why she's there. Like, she probably followed Bond here because she and the other women have been observing Bond while he's been in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool, good. (laughs) Like, I don't know exactly how they figured out that Bond has disguised himself as an assassin, but whatever, you don't think about it too much. Yeah, it's, it's a thing that does annoy me later on in the film where you actually, at least I was thinking, what was the point of him faking his own death? But that's, um, yeah, it's, it's 
it's another point. But yeah, I think you're right. She's just sort of always there, especially because of what we eventually learn of, of who she works for. So yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So we, well, her and Bond are driving. Bond kind of says, I want information. What do you know? And basically doesn't trust her. So she stops, runs away. Bond follows her. And then she stands at the bottom of these concrete stairs with this big kind of corridor between her and Bond. And it's just kind of standing there. Bond goes over and goodness, it's a trap door. Um, and <laughs> a big, Bond's, big door. It's a, yeah. And, and uh, Bond slides down and we get some very dodgy shots of James Bond sliding down here. I can't mm. remember exactly what they look like, but I remember being like, that's not right. This is not where the budget went. This slide scene. You know, smartly they did the because it clearly wasn't Sean Connery. So they had the, the 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 stunt guy covering his face, sort of as he's sliding down, which is that's that's fine. They could have just had that, but then they just felt the need to stick in some shots of Sean Connery's face as he's meant to be falling down. That's where it's like, oh, don't do that. Don't take that out. <laughs> you didn't need to do that. We can believe that Bond just goes down the chute. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, and then he lands into this big room, I guess. And we have a man who loves to laugh and initially seems quite evil, where he's all like, welcome to Japan, Mr. Bond. Ha 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 ha. And eventually we find out that this isn't an evil person, but this is Bond's contact, Tiger, who Mr. Henderson told Bond about before. And something I've got to say about this guy, and I'm not too sure if this is true, but some of the dubbing in this film especially for the Asian characters, is absolutely awful. Yeah. And I don't know if this guy was dubbed, but there were definitely scenes, including this one, where it felt like he was. I am. I would be unsurprised if pretty much every Asian character in this is dubbed. Because, yeah, you're right, it was it was not good for a lot of characters, especially some of the, the women later on. It's, it's kind of shocking, actually, if you, if you pay attention to it. They yeah. just don't, there's not, it just doesn't line up at all sometimes, like at all. Yeah, it's awful. It's like too quick sometimes. It's like trying to do that thing, I guess. Like the, it's almost like that stereotypical quick talking person, right? It's almost like that. But it's just, yeah, it, it's just bad. Like it's, it's just some lines that come out. You're just like, oh, that's not even close. And they've got a slight accent. So that it, I think I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the thing. I, this is actually about a character later on, but it's on the topic of dubbing. I feel like, did they get the same woman to do the dubbing of all, all women in Bond films for these first? I, I swear, like, all the women sound very similar, or at least a couple of them. But you're right, it, they, they just maybe put on a slight accent to, to try and sell it a bit more. It's not great either way. Yeah, I think, like, every film has had some bad dubbing from you know, Jill's sister and Goldfinger and things like that. It's just here is quite notable because it's quite a lot of characters. And I again, I don't know. Maybe this guy wasn't dubbed. I think there are some scenes where he's not dubbed, but I think this one in particular, because he has an accent and everyone's speaking in English, it just stands out and it's quite, quite awkward. But something that's quite cool about this scene is that, uh, so basically we see that Tiger kind of has eyes everywhere and he shows him these TV screens which shows Bond entering the engineering place and kind of him going down the slide as well, I think. But he has these like really weird circle TVs. And I don't know if they're meant to look futuristic, but because it's like in the 60s and the 60s trying to look futuristic, it looks really retro in a way that I actually really liked. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've said a couple of times now that some of these scenes are set in very big rooms, uh, but but the rooms do look good. They're always full of interesting things and, and the design of them. And you're right, these TVs, even though they're very, very badly um, kind of rotoscoped when they walk in front of them and things and they're rotating around, despite all that, it still looks cool. Yeah, definitely. I definitely enjoy these sets. I don't know when they go bad, but they haven't gone bad yet. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, seven, yeah, probably in the 70s it's going to go bad. Well, you just wait till time is off forever. I will. I will. You wait until uh, Blofeld's be- uh, room in, in the in the casino in that film. Oh, if I recall, there's some very strange things in there. I can believe it. Oh, yeah. Can't wait. So Bond gives Tiger the piece of paper that he stole from the safe and he's like, this is just a, a load of food, an order for different types of food. And Bond deduces that actually it probably means some sort of rocket fuel or, or something like that. Uh, and then we very quickly cut to uh, Tiger and Bond on a train platform where Bond is just like, here's my private train that I have that I can go anywhere with. And he says to to Bond, well, I'm sure your M back in London has a very similar arrangement. Which I don't remember what Bond says, but it's like, hmm, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what it says either, but you, yeah. I do like that. It's definitely meant to be that it's showing off sort of um, just how technologically advanced uh, the country is, because I'm sure they, you know, given the time they probably were. But um, I, I really like the whole train thing. I like, I, I just, you know, I'm a sucker for trains. I think I, I mentioned it before. Anything to set on a train, you know, sign me up. But uh, I'm trying to remember because kind of like Thunderball, uh, you only live twice is one of the books I have read because it's part of the Spectre trilogy. Um, and there is a big emphasis in the book about the relationship between Tiger, Tanaka and Bond. That's why it was causing Bondasan and stuff like that. And I think in the book, there is a, there is a whole thing on a train about how he has all these secret networks everywhere to travel around, which they mentioned about in the film. Um, it does it very, very quickly veers off from the plot of the book. Uh, I will quickly mention it now just because we probably won't talk about it again. But basically, the the plot of the book is that Blofeld, instead of any of space malarkey, um, Blofeld has a garden of death where he has poisonous plants and people come and kill themselves at it. That's it. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, so Blofeld is, is, uh, is set up a castle with all these poisonous plants um, and because of this Japanese thing about wanting to kill themselves. I don't know. It's all in the book. I'm just, I'm just telling you what's in the book. Uh, a lot of people visit and kill themselves in his garden of death. And so the, the government want Bond to go stop him. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> right. I'm assuming that's based off like the suicide forest in Japan. Cause there is a lot of things like that there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. I guess. So. And I think that's maybe what they were trying to touch upon a little bit in no time to die. But anyway, that's besides the point. Anyway, space. Space, yeah, this is all about space, damn it. <laughs> this is modern. This is cool. Uh, so, yeah, so they're on this train, which is also very wooden. This has a very kind of wooden aesthetic inside this train. So it doesn't look like a normal train. Like, it feels very tailored. And as you say, this is... A lot of this character is showing off, like, how advanced they are and all the different cool stuff that they have. So they sit down. They have a very pleasant time on this train, all being said. He offers him some sake. 
And he's like, I'm sure you won't like this, Mr. Bond. And Mr. Bond's like, oh, no, I, I like sake as long as it's served at the right temperature. <laughs> and then quotes the exact temperature that it needs to be shown on. So it's the degree coming to yep. good use. Another Absolutely. course at Cambridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he went to Cambridge. He knows these things. Uh, and then they take a look at a slideshow on a projector because they also just have a projector in this same train. And got everything. Yeah, fully. He's got Saki. He's got projector what more do you need (laughs) (laughs) he's good to go so i can't remember the exact details of this i think they're trying to track down where the rocket could be coming from and they find a ship and some tourist woman accidentally took a photo of this ship who specter then liquidized (laughs) Mm, interesting choice of words yeah they liquidized her to take care of the problem but um, Tiger and Bond have still ended up with these pictures, so they're now going to take a look at the photos to see if they can track down where this ship is, which I think does come back later, but this is another one where I got a little bit lost. I was just like, oh yeah, there's a boat. They're going to find the boat. A woman got liquidized. Good. Yeah, they didn't want anyone seeing this boat, and I think they also mentioned about some divers being next to it, so I guess they kind of, from that, can whistle down where it is. I think you're right, though. It's sort of like you just don't really need to pay too much attention to it you just i think by this point it's like you you sort of know that the because uh, yeah they mentioned about the rocket fuel stuff so i think that's the thing you're like okay rocket fuel osata that's where we're gonna go down it's like oh, that's, that's fair enough i can keep up with that yeah this is just to simply they looked at a boat it's gonna be important later but that's it that's all you need to know especially because now they're gonna move on to some some uh massages and baths that's the important stuff anyway mm. him and uh, him and tiger i think they go back to tiger's is it tiger's house he says like his own house or something like that i don't know yeah um they go to this building anyway this sort of uh it's like a very nice in the how what would you describe those ads i don't know but it's like very japanese looking houses but again a different type of very japanese looking house yeah yeah so they're definitely out of the city now sort of thing um, and it's it's just a little bit of of Bond and and Tiger bonding, I guess, and and trying to show the relationship growing a little bit on screen because there's all this talk about, um, uh, well, basically how well treated men are in Japan and and how they always come first and and women second and you know Bond would obviously love this you know it's right up Bond Street um, but he's there getting all these like women giving him attention and scrubbing him and all sorts of stuff like he's loving it um but i can't actually remember if there's anything really revealed in this scene i think it's more just going over the whole russian and american war possibility so the big thing that happens here is that bond and for the first time in the film he says specter he says i believe this is specter doing this uh, which is no worry but uh going back to the women yeah this is a bit is it a bit hard to watch like he straight up says like rule one, never do anything that someone else can do for you. Uh, rule two in Japan, men always come first, women come second, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I need to say how not great this is. Um, not just yeah. from like a '60s perspective, but I don't know a lot about Japanese culture. But I would hope that's not true. But 
Yeah, especially because all these women in underwear come out and are just serving him. Like, I don't mind the idea of Tiger is a powerful man, so has a load of women who will, like, give him a bath. That that probably does happen, right? That's fine. Uh, but the fact that they have to spell it out as, no, Mr. Bond, women are second in this country. And Bond's like, I could get used to this. It's just like, hmm, okay. <laughs> okay. This film, this film is pretty bad. I mean, no film has been very good <laughs> in, in representing women, let's be honest. But this film is is especially bad given that I'm, I'm with you. I don't really know much about Japanese culture and what it was like in the 60s, uh, especially. But um, there is a lot of of that where it's about women second. And there's a whole thing later on about women with pig faces, for goodness sake. Like, they really don't hold back. Um, so, yeah, not, not great. Not great. Um, I think... I think there's a bit with uh, the the one bit I did like in the scene is where it's calling out uh, Sean Connery's hairy chest, and it's like, <laughs> and it's like Japanese proverbs say, "Bird does not nest in bare tree." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I don't think that's a natural proverb, but there you go. It is now. It is now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so something I do like on the the subject of not this uh, is Bond saying Spectre, and I think something I do appreciate about this film more broadly is how the last two Spectre films we had, from Russia With Love and Thunderball, it was very much seeing things from Spectre's perspective and kind of following along their plan with them. So in Russia With Love, we get their plan explained up front and we get to know number three and number two and things like that. With Thunderball, we get to see number two straight away. And yes, we figure out what the plan is as we go. But all that stuff is very upfront and we spend a ton of time with Spectre. But this one decides to tackle it in a different way. Even though we know it's kind of Spectre, they decide to push them more to the background. I don't remember exactly when we first start seeing people who are 100% specified as, you know, these are Spectre agent of things like that. And Bond in this scene does say, yeah, it's Spectre. But I like that they've been pushed to the background like that. It's nice to see a Spectre plot play out where we don't see them a lot. And actually, as the film comes in is when we start saying, OK, they're Spectre and things like that. Like, we know it's Spectre, but it's it's a different way of doing it. And I can appreciate them kind of mixing up that formula and not going through the same motions that they did for Fundable and From Russia With Love. I I would agree. I would agree in, in the, the mixing it up. I think that is quite good. Um I, I don't personally I don't think we get enough Spectre well maybe not Spectre maybe just Blofeld at, at the end of the film um, but you know before we reach that point yeah I quite like how we're just getting the the operational bits that are happening you know the, all the all the rocket kidnaps and stuff like that um, but yeah I just wish we, we got more Spectre towards the end yeah that's fair enough because, uh, yeah, most of the time is Bond technically going up against Spectre, but, yeah, he fights the front and the fake business that is used to hide Spectre, then right at the end is when when they come back. Mm, yeah. So at the end of this scene is Bond getting a massage, and then Aki swaps in for the woman who's massaging them and starts massaging Bond, and then Bond notices, and they kiss because... Reasons? Okay, I I must have completely misread this then. I don't know. I thought maybe that was the same because Bond saying about how he was having a massage in Hong Kong that got interrupted, which is when he died. <laughs> yeah, died. 
Um, So I I presumed it was the lady from that, like that scene. Well, how could it be? Because wasn't she in on the... Oh, no, but it's a fake, isn't it? Yeah, but I, Ah. I, I, I don't... I can't... You know what? I really could be way off the mark there. But yeah, um, either way, I think it it's someone. <laughs> I, you might be right. And maybe this is me being uh, not great. <laughs> uh, but I took it that it was Aki. And because Aki and her had been, Aki and Bond had been hanging out, it was doing the typical Bond thing of, oh, Bond and the woman has spent more than five minutes on screen. So now they're going to kiss. Uh, so I kind of took it as that. I, I think it could have been either of us being not great there, but either way, yeah. Bond just yeah gets gets on with it with them um, with the lady there. So after that scene, we get uh, Bond heading back to the Osata headquarters, wherever that is. Really, really cool looking building anyway, um, because yeah, he's going to follow up on the idea of the rocket fuel and and what they're doing with it, sort of thing. So he's in disguise um, for this scene. He goes in as a What's his name? Fisher? Mr. Fisher. Mr. Fisher. Yeah, Mr. Fisher. I think Tiger sets up a meeting between him and Osata. So he goes in there as Mr. Fisher, pretending to want some sort of business deal with some chemicals and whatever Osata deals with. Um, and he gets there into the office, I think like three minutes early, one of the one of the receptionists says, and uh, hangs about in the office. And then that's kind of where we see um, a couple of the, the staff looking a little bit shady watching him on a, a little of a very noisy camera thing that's following him and tracking him around the room uh, as he moves around um and yeah eventually uh, Os- is that his name is is his name Osata that the guy I'm not sure maybe is, he just, is that just the company name I'm going to call him Mr Osata <laughs> that he arrives in a helicopter uh with a with a lady and they come in and and begin the meeting and one of the things that i thought was quite strange about this is they, they yeah they put a lot of emphasis on the on the the woman who comes in with um mr osata uh because i think she just she keeps offering bond some champagne and um i think eventually he says yes but yeah they, they're definitely you know there's a few of these shots where it kind of lingers on her looking at him and so they're definitely setting up that something weird is going on you know pay attention to this this lady i guess uh, but yeah, Bond is in there as Mr. Fisher and just has this very quick uh, conversation with Mr. Osata, which I quite liked because he sat down uh, in front of this desk where Mr. Osata is and you can see that he's got uh, an x-ray camera looking at Bond and can see he's got a gun on him. You know, he knows that he's not, something's not right. Uh, so you sort of get this little back and forth conversation where it's sort of a little bit uh, playing on the words of of taking risks and things and and... Bond thinks he's talking about smoking, but it's actually, you know, it's it's just very, just a little thing that I think is quite nice. But in terms of actually what comes from it, I think not much really apart from Bond. And this is why I don't really understand. I don't really understand why Bond had to fake his death. Because it's meant to give him more elbow room. But he just immediately goes and sees people who end up being Spectre. Like... I, 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 maybe I'm missing something obvious, but was there actually any benefit to him not being, you know, people thinking that he was dead? Well, there is in the film. I don't know is if you there? remember, because these two characters specifically say that can't be James Bond because James Bond is dead. But they were going to kill him anyway. 
(laughs) Yeah, for different reasons, though. They didn't think it was Bond. They just thought it was someone being nosy and sticking into their business. And because it's Spectre, they're like, we don't like people in our business, so we're going to kill you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they do say that. You're right. I don't know. I think think it's worth doing, and I like it as a plot point. They don't really focus on it that much. But I think something that doesn't help, and I, I, I also quite like this, is that... I always like these scenes where Bond is pretending to be someone else. So in this one, it's Mr. Fisher because he makes zero effort to change his personality. Like he makes zero <laughs> effort to pretend to be someone else. It's like, it's me, Mr. Fisher, who is a womanizer who drinks and smokes and wears nice suits and is very smug and smiley all the time. Like it's just Bond. He's just pretending to be another name. So while Bond can be a good spy, it always makes me laugh and I always enjoy it when he pretends to be someone else because he never puts any effort to change anything about himself. There was no course in, in Cambridge about that. No, they were just like, be yourself. It's, it's important. <laughs> and he just took that to heart. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. So we do get a couple of things that happen here. So yeah, so they have a, a conversation about chemicals You know, it's the old classic. They know each other is lying, but they're going along with it. But one thing that does happen is that Miss Brandt opens the drinks cupboard where the guy was that Bond put, and Bond pays attention to that and sees that the guy is gone. So he knows that somebody has found a body there, but nothing has really happened about that, which again makes them a little bit suspicious. Uh, And then we get a very awkward line uh, to set up a joke where the... Or, or Sato or Sato is saying like cigarettes are very bad for the chest and then Miss Brandt walks over next to Bond and says he believes in a healthy chest and <laughs> oh. yeah. what's that character's name by the way? Miss Brandt Miss Brandt okay wow I completely missed that I it's one of the actual names I wrote down I don't I do don't, names yeah, but this yeah, one I, I actually did I picked up on it yeah well, good, good for you well done I, I completely missed that <laughs> Thank you. Bond and Miss Brandt. Those were the two names I got. So at Good. this point, uh, they kind of agree for some chemicals because Bond is pretending to be a manager from another company wanting to buy them. Bond says where his hotel location is and then leaves. And then Osato tells Miss Brandt, kill him, kill Mr. Bond. Um, and then we cut to, I find this kind of funny because this is the second time we've had it where Bond has gone on to this chemical engineering offices and then he walks out and they just start shooting at him yeah terrible it it ends in the same way where it's like they shoot at him massively miss and then aki shows up and it's like get in the car and then he gets in the car uh and then they drive away and it's like it seems (laughs) it's just one of those plot things where it's fine overall but it's like character goes to a place Find some stuff, gets shot at, leaves the place. Character goes and talks to someone, goes back to that place again, gets some more stuff, gets shot up and leave. And you're just like, someone needs to get better security. Like, surely <laughs> somebody recognized this big British guy and says, actually, maybe that's the guy that was here before. And I love the idea of another scene later if he just, like, came back again <laughs> in a diff- with a mustache. He's like, hello, sir. I'm just going to take a look around. And then it just ends in him being shot at, running away, and Aki's like, Bond, here, quick! <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it just goes to show how um, how good the SIS are for Bond. You know, they've really got his back in this film. And I actually do think, like, all jokes aside, I think that's probably an element of it, is that they, they're really trying to um, 
uh, build the bond between bond uh no pun intended the bond between um bond and the japanese secret service uh, especially given the ending of the film where there's a lot of a lot of japanese men die in this film yeah. uh so yeah i think probably that but you are right it's kind of it's the fact it's just so similar it's like and, and not even that long afterwards um is a bit odd and uh, yeah like i say terrible terrible assassins honestly like more leaning out of a car window shooting haphazardly and, and missing and it's a bit of a strange scene where this ends up because yeah it turns into a bit of a car chase through tokyo um and aki is on you know the high-tech equipment that they have in japan he has this little screen in the car and is talking to uh tiger or, or someone anyway and saying let's um let's give them uh, the usual reception she words it as to the car that's chasing them uh, and what that means if anyone will know, what what possibly could the usual reception be well of course it's a helicopter that comes along with a big magnet picks up the car and drops it into the sea the easiest way <laughs> How else would you solve it? Yeah, how else I don't would you know. Solve that? I don't, it's just the most logical, logical procedure by far. So this whole sequence to me had a very different feel because we've had car chases before, not as many as you would think, considering it's James Bond. But we've had car chases before. But something I thought was quite interesting is that most of this car chase, actually, you don't get any like person shots, like zoom in shots of them in the car. And it felt almost like an episode of Top Gear or something. Like, or it was like a <laughs> racing that I was watching. Because for most of this chase, or at least the first half of it, it's just here's a shot of one of the cars, like, you know, zoomed out down the street. And then you see the other one. And then you see the other one again. And it's just these outward shots of the cars chasing each other. And it's really weird because normally in Bond chases or what we've seen in the other films is that they constantly cut back to sean connery pretending to drive and being like what's going on here oh i've got to get away uh but this one no they really segregate it where it's just like no we're going to give you a ton of shots with people chasing each other just like two cars and then once we want to resolve this scene then you'll have them talking with the rear projection and that's where the helicopter came in so i don't know if that's because of the director is different but yeah it was a to me it felt really different compared to any other chase we've had before i think because of that it to me it was better because you didn't have those jarring green screen rear projection whatever it was those jarring cuts to bond so it didn't disrupt the flow very much i don't know i mean having said that i can't really remember much from this scene so i can't tell you if there's any cool stunts or anything i think it's mainly just the helicopter bit at the end but yeah, and it definitely didn't stop him from doing those bad-looking shots in other parts of the film. But at least for this one, it's a little bit more uh, seamless. Yeah, it's just very different. Because, yeah, I don't remember any stunts, which is, again, also makes it feel different. It's just two cars driving fast through Tokyo, which which works, really. A bit like Spectre, really, in Rome. Well, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> So at the end, the helicopter drops into the ocean, of which Bond says, "Oh dear, no, <laughs> I can't remember." <laughs> what, does he... <laughs> what does he say? Just he a says, drop in the ocean? Just a drop in the ocean. There you go. There it is. <laughs> I think "Oh dear" would have been better. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if there was like a scene where Bond just says a really just says something that just doesn't make any sense or is really lame, and it just cuts to like the other person just looking at him. <laughs> like, what? 
Huh? <laughs> I like the idea of taking the oh dear and dubbing it over all the iconic ones. Like, instead of shocking, absolutely shocking. <laughs> it's just like, oh dear. I think that would probably work in most situations, actually. So maybe not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. For England, James. No, for me. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting lots of ideas for, uh, for re-edits during this podcast. I'm going to have to write them down. <laughs> so yeah bond is then talking to tiger i believe through the car video phone and says tell m to send little nelly and suggest that she's occupied by her father which that's all you get you hear the name little nelly a lot but he's asking for little nelly and now we know that's on the way what could that possibly mean they also say something about uh ning oh the boat the boat's called ningpo um, which has been spotted at Kobe Docks. That sort of leads on to the next scene. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode five of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Tom next time, where Bond finally reunites with Little Nelly, undergoes a very questionable transformation before reaching Spectre's lair, and meeting Blofeld face-to-face for the first time. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.